morning. Good morning. Good to see you today. Thank you for those who are joining us live stream. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're looking for a church home, your search is over. We say welcome home. We love you. Be a part of our spiritual family. So let me start this morning with a quote, a quote from Trish Warren. She writes, Today is the proving ground of what I believe and of whom I worship. I'm living this life, the life right in front of me, this one where marriages struggle, this life where we aren't living as we thought we might or as we hoped we would, this one where we are weary, where we want to make a difference but aren't sure where to start, where we have to get dinner on the table or the kids' teeth brushed, where we have back pain and boring weeks, where our lives look small, where we doubt, where we worry about those we love, where we struggle to meet our neighbors and love those closest to us, where we grieve, where we wait. If I'm to spend my whole life being transformed by the good news of Jesus, I must learn how grand, sweeping truths, doctrine, theology, ecclesiology, Christology, rub against the texture of an average day. How I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my Christian life. Well, that's been the raison d'etre of this sermon series. It's been the thrust, so to speak. 24, we're talking about encountering God in an average 24-hour day, not just on a Sunday, but in a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Friday, on a Saturday, an average day. We're talking about what we've called a liturgy of the ordinary. A liturgy is an order of worship. We have a liturgy today. We have an order of worship we're going through. But now we're thinking about an average weekday with a liturgy so that the rituals we go through, the habits that we have, are triggers, not negative triggers, but good triggers to help us think about God and connect with God and pray. The Bible says pray without ceasing and worship God. So we wake up and we think about our baptism. We brush our teeth and we thank God for a body. We have an argument with a spouse or with a loved one. We offer the peace of Christ. We get stuck in traffic. And remember that God's in control and we have to wait on the Lord. Things like that. So today as we wrap up this, this series, 24, we're going to look at uh, two more of those type of things. Let's start with drinking tea and savoring. Drinking tea and the spiritual discipline of savoring. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. So it's not for nothing that after each day of creation, God looked at what he did and said, it is good. And then the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist didn't say, declare that the Lord is good. He didn't say, reason it out and confess that the Lord is good. He said, taste and see. In other words, we are engaging the, the uh, creation of God with our senses. And we are affirming, we're saying, yes, God, we agree with you. It's good, and you are good. So here's something you may not like know about me. I, every once in a while, I like to brew a cup of tea. I get the ginger root, shave it into the water, boil it, add some honey, and I get my tea, and then I go out there on my back porch, and I forget about the reading and the study and the work and the yard and the kids and the grandkids and the spouse, maybe not the spouse, but I put things aside, go out on my back porch and sit out there 
with my koi pond. That's right. I have a koi pond on my back porch with a burbling, bubbling waterfall and beautiful flora all around. No koi. Koi ruin a koi pond. Just the pond and the waterfall. And savor the tea and enjoy my pond. And as I sit there, and this is rare, but every once in a while I'll do this, and I just enjoy that pleasure, and I taste and see that God is good. What are some of these things that you like to do? How do you like to savor the creation and appreciate God? You have some favorite things. Now, you know some of mine because you've been listening to me for a while. I, I, I just talk about my life. So, you know, I like to go to the zoo, like to spend time with the grandkids. I like the smell of fresh, fresh baked bread. Every once in a while, I like to strum a guitar and have some tea. What are some of your favorite things to do? Well, just to prime the pump for you this morning, I know, what, I know what most of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, Steve, it's been too long since we've had a clip from a musical in one of your sermons. And you know I like musicals. And so here we're going to let Julie Andrews serenade us for about a minute and ten seconds here with her song from The Sound of Music, a few of my favorite things. Let's roll that clip. Now, so here's your homework. You got two homeworks today. Here's the first one. At lunch this morning, today, or at brunch, or at breakfast, wherever you're going to go, I want you to discuss with your family, with your spouse, maybe with your kids, what are some of the favorite things you have? Just little pleasures. Because, folks, we worship God, and we can engage God through pleasure. Now, uh, so I want you to talk about that at lunch today, and just discuss. And you may, if you've been married a long time, or you've been with your family a long time, most of you have, you will know some of those, and maybe some of those uh, you won't so much. But... The church, historically, sometimes gets a bad rap when it comes to pleasure and maybe has a reputation of being anti-pleasure. H.L. Mencken, the writer, for instance, described uh, Puritan culture. He says Puritans, uh, he described them as people who have this overarching fear that somebody somewhere may be enjoying themselves. But really, that's, the church, is, is, from the beginning, has been sensuous. In the original meaning of that word, that is, we encounter God and engage him through his creation and through our senses. For a lot of you, it's not, tea is not your drink of choice when you're savoring, is it? What is it? Coffee. For a lot of you, it's coffee. You know, Starbucks did not create the coffee culture. The church did. Coffee was invented by ancient Ethiopian monks. And cappuccino, that word cappuccino comes, the root word is, uh, the etymology of it is based on the shade of brown of the habits of the Capuchin monks in Italy who invented cappuccino. So we have an extravagant God who created an extravagant people who made an art out of roasted beans and frothed milk to put those things together and savor and agree that God is good. And when we do, when we savor and when we experience pleasure, we're taking after God. God enjoys his creation more than any of us do. You ever thought about that? When God said it is good, it wasn't, he wasn't being a, like a stoic manager checking off a list at the plant 
saying, well, that's good, that's good, now I can check out and go home early. He, he enjoys his own creation. He may enjoy coffee more than we do, or tea more than we do, or a babbling brook. G.K. Chesterton writes this, because children have abounding vitality, children, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Wherever you go, God's people are enjoying creation, are sensuous in that sense. Wherever you go, church people love to sing, always have, all different styles, whether it's Lutheran hymnody, you know, we sing a lot of hymns in this service, or African-American spirituals, or whether it's Gregorian chants, in every corner of the world, God's people gather for worship and they sing. In every house of worship, there are little touches of beauty. Now, whether that church is meeting in a schoolhouse or an ancient stone church house or a cathedral, God's people intuitively sense that he is worthy of worship through beauty and artistry. And so we'll, we'll see those little touches. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis devotes a letter to the subject of pleasure. His advice is to begin where you are. He writes, I once thought I had to start by summoning up what we believe about the goodness and greatness of God by thinking about creation and redemption, all the blessings of this life. Instead, we ought to begin with the pleasures at hand, which for him was simply a walk by a brook for me, sitting by my koi pond, for you, it will be something else. James 1.17, James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so we are thankful. So we're coming up to Thanksgiving. So we're thankful to God for, these, for a pleasurable creation that we can engage with our senses. Not only are we thankful, we adore God and worship Him for that. Again, C.S. Lewis said, we follow the sunbeam back to the sun. and We appreciate the source. And so we worship the Father. But we have to make sure we make a practice of this. There's so many things that war against it. We got bills to take care of. We got yard work to do. We have family necessities. Isn't it hard sometimes to sit down, take a moment, smell the roses, as they say, and just savor and appreciate God. But we can't let God's creation play to an empty house. We take time and savor. One more quote from Lewis. He reminds us that we must walk before we can run. We shall not be able to adore God on the highest occasions if we have not learned the habit of doing so on the lowest. At best, our reason and our faith will tell us that God is adorable, but we shall not have found him so okay savoring and then the second one for today sleeping and the sabbath rest sleeping and sabbath rest 
Hebrews 4.9. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. So there's a big study done in the UK, and we probably know this intuitively, that children have to learn. They've got to learn a ritual so they can begin to slow down at night and disconnect and go to sleep and rest. In our family, we've always called it bath, book, and bed. You may have used that as well. They get just a routine, and if they don't have that kind of a routine, a lot of times they have trouble going to sleep, and there are behavioral problems. And we often need a routine as well to step back and rest and to go to sleep. There is a connection between the physical rest that we get and sleep and the spiritual rest of God, the Sabbath rest, the Scripture sometimes refer to it as the Sabbath rest of God, the rest that we receive from God in our gathered worship. Our sleep, let's talk about physical sleep for a moment. Since we're at the end of our 24-hour day, our sleep reveals different things about us. It reveals our loves, for instance. What are we willing to lose sleep over? Those things that we love. So a lot of times, it'll be kids or grandkids. Now, when our kids were little, I don't know if you had a kid like this. We had two children. And on occasion, when our kids were little, we'd be sleeping. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, with this odd sense of being watched. And roll over on my side, and there's one of my children. And they both go to church here, so I probably shouldn't say which one. But there was one of my little children just standing there staring at me. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's creepy. How long have she, she been staring at me? So, you know, some problem, a nightmare or whatever, and she'd want to call in bed with us, and every once in a while, yeah, we'd let her come on into bed with us. What are we willing to lose sleep over? Our spouses, a good friend. We may stay up later at night to carry on a good conversation. We may need to get up early in the morning and take someone to an airport. Our sleep reveals uh, our loves. Sometimes the, the things that we lose sleep over are not quite as noble as all of that. So. We may stay up too late at night surfing the Internet, watching funny puppy videos, or, uh, or on Netflix, Hulu, binge-watching TV. And we don't consciously maybe say to ourselves, well, I value this 10th episode of Parks and Recreation more than I do my body or my family, who I'm going to be short with tomorrow, or my work and my responsibilities, we may not consciously say that, but our habits, our habits sometimes betray otherwise. We may have a tendency to lose sleep over entertainment or maybe workaholism more than we do prayer and worship of God. Uh, our sleep reveals to us our trusts. Do we ever lie awake at night? not able to sleep because we're worried and we're anxious. We worry about family. We worry about finances. We worry about health. Well, is that because we are trusting too much in ourselves and not enough in God who really has control over these things? Psalm 127.1 reads, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. It's God who is the watchman over the city and over our lives. In the Book of Common Prayer, there is a prayer given for late at night before going to, 
to bed. And I like the way it reads. It reads like this. Guide us, guide us, waking, O Lord, and guard us, sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your name's sake. Amen. Our sleep reveals our loves, our trusts, and our limits. And our limits. I, not too long ago, there was a sprint, a sprint campaign, publicity campaign, that went something like this. I need, no, I deserve to be unlimited. Now, I was talking about unlimited minutes and access and Internet, but I deserve to be unlimited. And that, and sometimes, is the message of our culture. We can be unlimited. No limits. And if, if you're not able to do everything you want to do and think you should be able to do, then somebody else is at fault. But the fact of the matter is, we are the opposite of unlimited. We are limited. We are finite beings. And we try to push and push and go and go and sometimes do without sleep, but eventually our body and our finitude and our mortality is going to assert itself and shut us down. According to the National Health Interview Survey, Nearly 30% of adults average less than six hours of sleep per night. Only about 30% of high school students reported getting at least eight hours of sleep on an average school night, though they need around 10. Over 7% of people between 25 and 35 admitted to actually nodding off while driving in the past month. 75% admitted to nodding off in church. It's even worse. In 2013, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention declared insufficient sleep a public health problem. What do we, we've heard these statistics before. You know what we do? Ooh. Fine, preacher, I know. We're tired, we're weary, we're overworked. Pass me another cup of coffee. You know what? It's a, it's a health problem, maybe, but sometimes it's indicative of a spiritual problem. So we have 24-hour big box stores, we have 24-hour drive-throughs, we have late-night TV, we have late, late, late-night TV, and we just don't want to stop and go to sleep. And yet God calls us to sleep, and he restores us in his sleep. Now, some people have medical problems, and we're grateful for medicine that can help us if that's an issue with insomnia. Some people, it's their job to work through the night. We're grateful for nurses and midwives and police officers and firefighters and night watchmen and all of that. But uh, you know what? Sometimes it is. We, we just hate admitting that we have limits and that we are mortal. Now, in an episode of the radio show, This American Life, Ira Glass admits that his fear of sleeping goes hand in hand with the fear of death a small taste of the big sleep. One man that Glass interviewed says that when he goes through his day, driving to work, stuck in traffic, busy with friends and family, he doesn't think about his mortality. But that lying in bed, half asleep, he remembers to his horror that he will die. Glass interviews others who wake up afraid, unable to fall back asleep, remembering with terror that their death is fast approaching. No wonder the Hebrew writer writes, Hebrews 2.15, 
Jesus set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Well, some people may think it's morbid to talk about our mortality and the certainty of our death. It's not. Facing it and facing the brevity of life teaches us to live well, doesn't it? We have the hope of the resurrection to look forward to. Psalm 3, 5, the psalmist writes, I lay down and sleep and I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. Our trust is in God. Now, in the Jewish culture, many of you will know this, in the Jewish culture, the day begins with sundown, right? The day for a Jew begins with sundown, not sunup. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, and there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. That approach sort of reorients our entire perspective. We start out resting. We start out vulnerable, drooling on our pillow, relying on God to guard us. Eugene Peterson writes, the Hebrew evening morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. Now, God works in our world through the night. Right? He's growing crops. He's healing people. He's mending. He's working. There's a Scottish theologian. His name is Bailey. He suggests that God is working in us also spiritually when we sleep. That we wake up better men and women after a night's sleep because the Holy Spirit has been working on us. This is sanctification even while we sleep. Let me give you his quote. He writes this in his Theology of Sleep, John Bailey. We habitually suppose ourselves to be more the masters of our spiritual development than we actually are. If some of the processes that are necessary for our physical well-being go on more advantageously in our sleep, why should not the same be true of some of those processes that advance our spiritual well-being? It's kind of the heart of worship. We rely more on the grace of God than we sometimes realize. We don't come in here this morning to kind of gin up an attitude of worship. We come in here and we go through our liturgy and we sing and we pray and we read scripture. We have the Lord's Supper. And these are vehicles through which God comes and meets us and does his transforming work in us. It's grace. It's always the gift of God working inside of us. We're going to spend one-third of our lives asleep. With the right attitude, that sleep can be a confession that we trust God to guard us and trust that God is working in us as we sleep. What if we were countercultural people in our culture through being well-rested? What if we didn't fight sleep? Well, we were those people who entered into the physical rest of God just as we enter into the spiritual rest of God as a part of our worship. So in the Gospels, remember that account of Jesus sleeping in that boat through the terrible storm, sleeping through the storm in the boat. Well, that was theological sleep for sure because it was an expression of his absolute trust in the God's guarding. It's also a story about a man who was tired and just needed a nap. Just needed a nap. And maybe one of the best things that we can do for our prayer lives, 
in our spiritual lives. And our worship is to get a good night's sleep the night before. So here's your second homework assignment. I want you to go home today and take a nap. You have my permission. Our Father in heaven, uh, we trust you, God. We know that you are guiding us in the day and you are guarding us in the night until that time when it's you take us home to your ultimate Sabbath rest. Lord, we appreciate your creation. We savor it. We enjoy it. We want to enter into it and enjoy it with just as much pleasure as you do. And through these things, these normal things in an average day, we engage in and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.